If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Augustus, Hadrian, Caligula, Nero and Marcus Aurelius. Among the roll call of Roman emperors are some of the most fated and reviled figures in history. So it's no surprise that we were overwhelmed with questions for this latest episode in our Everything You Wanted to Know series. Many thanks to everyone who sent one in. Our expert for today's episode is Dr Shushma Malik of the University of Roehampton. And putting the questions to her was BBC History Magazine editor Rob Attar. Today, in the latest of our Everything You Wanted to Know podcast series, we're talking about Roman emperors, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Shushma Malik, who's an expert on Roman emperors based at the University of Roehampton. She's written a book on the Emperor Nero, which was published last year, and also appeared in our magazine and podcast to talk about him as well. And I'm expecting him to crop up in this discussion too. So Shushma, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hi, Rob. I'm really well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So let's begin with a fairly straightforward question that's one of these internet search queries, and that was, who was the first Roman emperor? And I guess it would also be good to explain why at this point Rome switched to imperial rule. 
So the first Roman emperor was Augustus. Um, he was given that name in 27 BC when he became uh, de facto sole ruler of Rome, I think is probably the best way to describe it. Um, in 27 BC, the Senate um, had a meeting. Augustus handed back all of the extraordinary powers that he had had during the Civil War period, which had come just before um, the time period we generally tend to think of as the fall of the Roman Republic. Um, and then the Senate said, uh, well, no, don't, it's okay, you can have those powers back. Um, and he was able then to go on and establish, over a long period of time, um, a new system of government really in Rome known as the Principate. So Augustus was our first Roman emperor and his dates are usually thought of as 27 BC um, to 14 AD when he died. And just actually staying on that topic, was it always the plan that he would be succeeded by another emperor? At what point did that become the, the idea that this would be a dynasty rather than just a one-off? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because our... It's difficult to, in our sources, really, to see that that was a plan from the beginning. Um, I think right from the start of Augustus's Principate, we can't necessarily say that dynastic succession was going to be automatic. Um, but certainly from fairly early on, I think Augustus was thinking about who might potentially succeed him. So um, in the uh, 20s as well, BC, Augustus gets quite ill. And at that stage, there's a, a bit of a, 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 a attempt to try and think about what will happen next. And he hands various powers to various people, including Agrippa, his um, friend and um, someone who had been quite instrumental in the process of defeating Mark Antony, for example. Um, so there does seem from fairly early on to be some sense that this is going to be the transfer of power rather than, say, at the death of Augustus, that the Roman Senate will take control again. And then another um, popular internet search query is how many Roman emperors were there? And I guess here it's going to get a bit complicated because it depends what you define a Roman emperor as. Yeah, so this is a very complicated question. It's a great question, but um, hard to answer in a sort of very straightforward number. Um, I have a poster on my office door in Roehampton of the Roman emperors. It's quite a common poster. If the, you sort of Google search it, you'll see a picture. And that has 72. So I'm going to go with 72 um, uh, from, from that. But the reason why it's so difficult, as you um, rightly say, is because um, particularly in the third century AD, there were quite a number of usurpers um, who were claiming to be Roman emperors. They had the backing of their own military, their own armies um, in various parts of the empire. And they might have been emperor only for a few months or, you know, a few days um, sometimes. And it depends on how you judge their legitimacy and, and how we can think about those sorts of questions as well. And then, of course, there's uh, what's known as the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, um, which is normally dated to the 5th century AD. But of course, in the East, uh, the Eastern Roman Empire becomes the Byzantine em Empire. And then you can go all the way down to 1453 and the fall of Constantinople, if you would like to. So it's quite a, um, a tricky question, but I think I'll stick with 72. <laughs> okay, great. Um, yeah, it gets very complicated when we start having to go up to the 15th century and factoring yes. <laughs> in all the, all the Byzantine emperors. 
Okay, so we've had quite a number of questions sent in on a very similar topic. And the first one that I'd like to put to you is this one from Christian Williams on Facebook. And Christian writes, were Roman emperors as outrageously decadent in sex, living, culture, everything, as modern movies and TV would have us believe? Yeah, that's another great question. Um, my answer is perhaps a little bit um, uh, uh, sitting on a fence a little bit. Maybe, but probably not, is what I'm going to say. Um so, of course, um, as Kristen says uh, very rightly, there's a lot of, um, in popular culture, in TV and movies, um, right, you know, we can trace this back uh, really quite far from the time when, you know, movies started to be uh, created, really. Um, there's a lot of depictions of Roman emperors in particular as enjoying being uh, decadent, you know, having lots of... Uh, fancy dinner parties, dressing in these amazing ways, having these amazing palaces and generally living in a very sort of, um, uh, in a lifestyle that meant that they were being very, very excessive in everything that they did. Um, and what, the reason why I say probably not, I mean, I'm not saying that emperors didn't like luxury. They absolutely did, or some of them did, I think, um, some of the great stories we get about Nero from uh, writers like Pliny the Elder is about all of the different uh, bits of finery that he collected, the sort of gems that he had. He would sometimes watch um, performances through uh, a, a different coloured gems so that he could have different sensory experiences. And that, you know, those stories are, are absolutely wonderful and the sorts of things, of course, that, that TV and film are drawing on. Um, but I think we also have to be careful and, and, you know, wary um, of some of the extent to which these stories go, because luxury is a device with which you criticise um, politicians, emperors, whomever it might be, in ancient Rome, in Roman um, history writing, in Roman uh, moral writings, and in oratory as well. So this isn't a new thing of the imperial period of, of those writers, but actually goes back to the Roman Republic. Um, so one of the ways, for example, that Cicero criticised Mark Antony in his speeches against Mark Antony in the Senate was through his love of luxury. Uh, many things he criticised him for, but that was one of them. And of course, Antony was really one of the prime uh, candidates to be criticised along those grounds because of his association with the East, uh, with Egypt, with Cleopatra. Um, so the idea of luxury and that sort of freedom in lifestyle that we get through the writers, it does have a history in, as a way of criticising and moralising um, in Roman writing, in Roman thought. And it's also, of course, associated with the idea of monarchy as well. The people who are able to live in these ways need to be monarchs. They, you know, they, they normally have associations with either wanting to be monarchs or uh, having that that sort of monarchical power. Um, and that means that they can really do what they like. And luxury was one of the things that they might <laughs> do um, that they could really indulge in. Um, so accusations of excessive luxury like that, I think, is one of the ways that Roman writers in particular um, it described an emperor as pushing the idea of monarchical freedom that bit too far. So think of Caligula, think of Elagabalus, think of Nero. Uh, they really were pushing the boundaries of that idea of absolute power. Uh, and luxury was one of the ways to uh, show that. Now, I mean, two emperors that in particular tend to be highlighted 
in in the regard of like luxury decadence are um sorry Nero and Caligula. And so we had a question actually from Arista on Twitter who said, how much of the scandalous stories about emperors like Nero and Caligula are true and how much of it is spin from their enemies? Yeah, this is another really nice question because it also goes to, a bit like I was saying before, it goes to the idea of the sorts of sources that we're left with from um, antiquity. And Arista is absolutely right in uh, pointing out the fact that our historical record does have some issues with it because it is largely speaking for emperors like Caligula and Nero. Um, it comes from people who wrote quite significantly after their reigns. Um, a generation after in some cases, but but often more than that as well, farther removed than that. Um, we do occasionally, we do have some contemporary sources, um, sources from Nero's reign, for example, um, the uh, poetry or... Um, other types of, of writings, but we don't have those histories, those narrative historical accounts. Those come from later, so from the early second century when we talk about Tacitus and Suetonius, or in fact from the late second century and early third century when we talk about Cassius Dio. Um, so those scandalous stories, um, some of them, <laughs> it's sort of the perils of being an ancient historian, really. You have to try and make lots of judgments, as, as Arista is um, saying here. Um, I am sometimes a little bit sceptical about some of the more scandalous stories that are told, um, particularly when you wonder, um, how does a historian, uh, you know, how does a later uh, Roman historian or biographer know about these things. So there's some things that you you can kind of think, okay, so that is in an imperial archive, that would be in the records of the Senate, that, you know, is traceable also through material evidence. We can see inscriptions that bear out this, or we can see um, uh, other, uh, other sources that are, are drawing on the same sorts of themes. But there are other times where you think, well, um, <laughs> when you hear accounts of the private things that Nero supposedly did in his bedroom with the various people that he married and shouldn't, so the castrated Sporus, for example, you do wonder, um, how did Su how does Suetonius, writing in the early second century, <laughs> know about this? And of course, it's rumour, isn't it? It's things that, other, you know, he'll have read from the time that other people have um, been talking about. Um, the private antics of emperors, of course, is going to be the gossip in of uh, uh, in around the city, uh, we you know uh, Suetonius also talks about graffiti that's still around in his time that you know talks about Nero um, in various different ways. It, so we we sort of look out for those sorts of clues. Is this you know something that is backed up by other I, other sources? Is there evidence that can come from uh, a, a, an archive or a um, collection of records from the Senate? Or is this probably more going to be something to do with the gossip going around the city? And we're quite lucky that sometimes the historians tell us that themselves. So, for example, one of the uh, most scandalous stories about Nero is that he apparently sang and played the lyre while Rome burned. So stood watching that event and uh, and, and composing and singing. Um, and Tacitus says, well, you know, that was a rumour. That's what people were talking about. That's what the city was saying that that um, Nero was doing. Um, actually, you know, he was um, trying to get people into, into safety. He opened up his gardens. Um, Tacitus says uh, he was helping out as well. Um, 
But there were rumours, of course, that spread around that other things happened. And those are based on the idea that Nero probably would quite have liked maybe to be be singing at this stage. But actually, he um, was doing other things, um, trying to help out. So we do have um, ways of trying to weigh up the evidence that we find in the sources. Sometimes we're lucky the sources tell us themselves. Um, Other times we have to think, well, how plausible is this? And what is the other evidence that we can bring in to try and um, analyse this a bit further? And I suppose still on this similar theme, uh, Jess Dinning on Facebook asked, how was Rome able to survive for so long despite the tumultuous and crazy reigns of the Julio-Claudians? And I suppose we are qualifying that a little bit about how crazy they were, but they certainly were quite eventful. Yeah, so Rome was, um, (laughs) that period of Rome was very eventful. We do have... um, quite a lot going on with these early early emperors. Um, some lasted longer than others. So, um, for example, uh, Augustus had a very long principate. He was emperor from 27 BC to 14 AD, which is a, a, a really good amount of time to consolidate uh, the principate, to get things set up, to establish a lot of customs, to uh, be able to reform the religious calendar, um, all of these sorts of things, which Julius Caesar had had done as well. But we do have um, emperors who had much shorter reigns. So Caligula was only four years, for example, from 37 to 41. Um, But then uh, Claudius and Nero also had, you know, fairly uh, a good amount of time to sort of um, keep things, set things up and keep things fairly stable, um, (laughs) even though it might not seem like it from some of the accounts, but fairly stable during their periods. Um, So Claudius from 41 to 54, and then Nero from 54 to 68. And I think the way that I would answer this question is, is when we hear about the sorts of things that happened in Rome, the sorts of things that uh, Nero is accused of, that that Caligula is accused of, um, and later on, on, sorry, emperors like Domitian and Commodus and, and Elagabalus, these are things that they were doing in Rome that were being talked about that affected the senators, the historic, you know, the people who were writing about those in our histories um, are sometimes senators themselves. So Tacitus is a senator, Cassius Dio is a senator. Um, and these are then ways of looking at emperors very much from the centre, from, from Rome. If we widen our view to, to the empire, um, actually, you know, whether or not Nero was building uh, the Domus Aurea across various hills in Rome would have been less important to someone in, uh, you know, in in the Greek East, in in um, Asia Minor, in these other provinces. Um, of course, you know, finances was was something to to think about. Um, but of, there are also sort of local systems of finances that were um, in in place as well. Of course provinces had to pay their taxes. Um, but a lot of that management was was more local. Um, so really, when we think about the system of the principate, the system of, of how the Romans, um, you know, ruled empire, you can have <laughs> these eclectic figures like, um, like Nero, like Caligula, like Domitian, and not necessarily actually threaten the system itself. So it seems like uh, the system was resilient enough um, to be able to withstand these periods of slightly more chaotic emperors in Rome. And then um, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this question from uh, Carmen Ansborough on Facebook, who said, 
Why do we hear more about the earlier emperors, such as Nero, Caligula, etc., whereas later emperors like Caracalla, Elagabalus, <laughs> Severus, Alexander, etc., had some really interesting stuff going on? Yeah, um, Carmen's right. They did have some great stuff going on. Um, Elagabalus, in fact, is one of my favourite emperors. I wrote my master's dissertation on Elagabalus. Um, but the, the uh, Carmen's right in saying that we do hear in, in popular culture, at least, much more about those um, early emperors. And I think part of the reason for that, perhaps, is because our sources are a little bit more reliable for that period. So we have a um, Roman historian called Tacitus, who is a, a great historian. He, you know, without his text, we would be certainly much worse off for, for that period. Um, and he writes about, um, he actually wrote about emperors right the way up to Domitian, but we don't have um, much of what he said from the beginning part of, of Vespasian onwards. So he um, starts his histories of the emperors, if you like, um, from the death of Augustus. He says he doesn't need to talk about Augustus because so many people have done it already. Everyone has made up their minds. He's, of course, writing in the early second century, so quite a lot, uh, so later than Augustus. But he's going to start with Tiberius, with the start of the Principate of Tiberius. And then he goes through in his, uh, one of his collections, which is called the Annals of Imperial Rome, he goes through to the death of Nero. Unfortunately, the last two years of that is missing, so it breaks off for us in AD 66, which is slightly infuriating, but um, that is what it is. We've also lost um, quite a lot of his account of the reign of Caligula, which is also very um, sad, but um, he did leave us quite a lot in, in the annals to, to get our teeth into. And he also writes in another of his historical works called The Histories, um, he writes about the uh, aftermath of the death of Nero, so the year of the four emperors in AD 68 to 69. And he did go through, as I said, to the reign of Domitian, but um, actually uh, we only have until the beginning of Vespasian, which is, um, which is 69 AD. So because we have Tacitus as a source, we have a bit more information to go on. Um, I say that because he really did take into account things like the re records of the Senate, um, uh, daily journals that were being written from Rome to the provinces, those sorts of things, which uh, is brilliant source material. Um, whereas when we get to the later period, so um, as Carmen said, emperors like Caracalla, Elagabalus, Severus, Alexander, um, these are all Severan emperors of the um, early third century. Um, and these are, uh, for this time period, we have less um, uh, secure uh, uh, historical narrative, at least. So um, we have a fragmentary version of the text of Cassius Dio, um, who was actually um, writing probably around this same period. So he's contemporary, which is great. He lived under these emperors, but um, his text is fragmentary. And then we also have another um, uh, text, which is a collection of biographies known as the Historia Augusta or Augustan History, um, which are quite difficult to deal with because um, it, within the text, it claims to be written by six writers, but it's now been fairly conclusively, conclusively proven that it's only one. And there are parts of it where it's easy to see that the writer is, is lying, <laughs> to be frank, um, is making things up. Um, so while his, uh, or he, he or she, actually we don't know who wrote it, but while their account of the um, 
of the uh, emperors like Caracalla, Elagabalus and Severus Alexander are a bit more reliable because we've got um, a few other texts that we can go on as well. Um, and also, sorry, I should say a Greek uh, writer named Herodian too for, for this period. But we don't have someone quite comparable to Tacitus to be able to get our information from. So that's uh, the source material is a bit of an issue for these later periods. But um, there's also, I think, something about the, the first dynasty, the Julio-Claudians, so Nero, Caligula, um, uh, those uh, other emperors as well, Claudius and Tiberius and Augustus, because it is a really fascinating time for thinking about the system of the government of the Principate. So looking at those emperors allows you to ask questions about how these different characters were negotiating the Principate in this early, in the earliest period of its um, of its existence. Um, so I think historians perhaps gravitate, or I think I'm, that's probably true of me as well, gravitate towards this period because it's early, because that's when all of these things were being decided on and historians were also deciding how they were going to write about it. And that, uh, from my perspective anyway, is really fascinating. And actually, I suppose on a similar note, we've got a question from Coriander Davis who asked, um, which forgotten less well-known emperors should we all know more about and why? Oh, this is a, a great question. Um, so I picked for this one um, the Emperor Aurelian. So Aurelian was um, around in uh, the third century, so 270 to 275 AD. Um, and you actually, you may have heard of him because he um, the Aurelian Wall is still there in Rome. If you go to Rome, you will see um, the, the Aurelian Wall around the city. That was one of the... Uh, uh, boundaries of the city that marked out um, exactly uh, where that sacred boundary was, that wall um, from the third century. So you may have heard of him for, for his wall, but the reason why I like him or I'm interested in him is because actually not necessarily anything directly um, to do with, with, with him as such, but because during his, his reign, 270 to 275, we get a really one of the most interesting, I think, episodes in history um, that have also includes a woman in it, <laughs> um, a woman with considerable power, in fact, in it. Um, and that's because in um, the period of Aurelian's reign, we see the revolt of uh, Zenobia, uh, the queen of Syria. So um, she was the queen of Palmyra in Syria and her husband, who had been king, Odonathus, um, died. Um, and she was um, then regent for her 10-year-old son, um, Vibalathus. Um, and as regent, she had a lot of control over that, uh, that region. And um, at this point, Syria was a buffer state between Rome and Parthia. So Parthia was the empire that was um, the rival of Rome that there were constant sort of military interactions between the two, um, particularly in this period. Um, and at this point in the third century, there was a lot of um, unrest in, in the empire, so in particular in the west of the empire. So a lot of the focus of the Roman military was um, occupied in the west and the north um, of uh, the empire rather than in the east. So Zenobia takes this as an opportunity to go on campaign and to expand her territory, expand Palmyrene um, territory. 
Um, so she conquers actually parts of the Roman province of, of Arabia, um, including the city of Bostra. And she um, also annexes Egypt, which means that these areas were loyal to Palmyra over Rome, or for a short period anyway, um, uh, a bit loyal to Palmyra. Um, and she's eventually defeated by um, the, the Emperor Aurelian and uh, captured and taken back to Rome as a prisoner. And um, one of the accounts, this is actually from the fairly unreliable Historia Augusta, so it's not necessarily um, <laughs> the easiest of sources to deal with, but um, they do include um, the idea that actually um, the uh, the idea that Zenobia was this uh, force to be reckoned with. So whether or not the this is kind of a, a statement of clear fact. I think it's probably not, but the, the sentiment is certainly interesting. Um, and the Historia Augusta talk about the existence of a letter of Aurelian's um, that um, basically uh, when he was getting criticism for having brought a woman back as part of his triumph, how can you um, basically be uh, triumphing over this, this woman? How could you let it go this far? Um, he writes to the senators, um, known as the conscript fathers, he writes and says, um, why, basically, why are you reproaching me for having performed an unmanly deed in leading Zenobia in triumph? In truth, uh, those very persons who find fault with me uh, would now accord me praise in abundance, did they but know the manner of woman she is, how wise in counsels, how steadfast her plans, how firm towards the soldiers, how generous when necessity calls, and how stern when discipline demands. Um, and that's just a, um, a really nice sort of anecdote, if you like, from the Historia Augusta from history of, of, of an episode where for a, a, a short while, a very short while, but for a short while, um, we get this uh, wonderful character of Zenobia going on, con on campaign against the against the Romans. And yes, she's taken back as a prisoner of war by Aurelian, but he then, um, or the Historia Augusta, then has him praise her for her her um, abilities and for her her wisdom and also for her discipline, which is um, quite a nice episode, I think, from history. It is, and actually that, that brings me on to uh, another question that got sent in, one from Agrobiodiverse, who who brought up the subject of, of women's role in this story, and he, and he or she asked, did the wives of emperors have any particular powers? Yeah, so um, they didn't have any formal powers, uh, the wives of emperors, um, whom we call empresses, but that's perhaps a slightly anachronistic term, um, but they didn't have any formal powers, but they certainly could have honours. So, for example, the title of Augusta. So I talked about the first emperor being called Augustus. Afterwards, that became a title as much as it did um, his name. Actually, it was a title, a sort of title anyway for him as well, because he it was a um, uh, title he was given by the Senate. It means the most revered one, something along those lines. Um, and there, so there became a female equivalent of that, Augusta, that um, imperial women could earn that title if they um, were uh, and afforded certain sort of, you know, the privileges that came along with being the most august woman, as it were, in, the, um, in, the, in Rome, in the empire. 
Um, so Augusta is one of the titles. Another one is uh, Mater Castrorum, which is uh, Mother of the Camp. And that has a military association, as you might expect. So emperors like uh, Julia Domna, Septimius Severus's wife, was uh, Mater Castrorum. She was Mother of the Camp. She had a... Um, uh, a relationship, if you like, with the soldiers. She um, was seen as a maternal figure towards you know, part of the, the Roman army. And that, again, it's not a power, but it's an honour and it, it's bestowing status. It's bestowing a special kind of um, status on, on women, um, on imperial women, sorry, I should say. Um, on the other side of that, the sort of soft powers, if I can put it like that, that um, imperial women are accused of having. So this is more of a negative than the honours I, I mentioned just now, um, is that historians like Tacitus, for example, Suetonius, um, are often accusing uh, or indicating that imperial women have too much soft power. They're, they're whispering in the ears of their husbands, telling them to do things that, you know, women want them to do and that they shouldn't be doing. Um, they have far too much of a direct connection to the emperor, um, in other words. So an example of this that's quite nice that shows this is um, uh, comes from the emperor reign of the emperor Claudius. And Tacitus says that um, the trial of um, a man named Valerius Asiaticus, who was uh, put on trial um, by the emperor as part of, um, for treason, basically, as... as uh, part of um, a uh, treason trials that were going on in Rome at that time. But the problem was he was put on trial at the request of Claudius's wife, Messalina, um, because the reason Tacitus gives is because uh, Valerius Asiaticus owned the beautiful gardens of Lucullus um, and Messalina wanted those gardens. So if he was found guilty, his property would be seized and she would be able to have those gardens or the imperial, uh, they would go over to, to, to the emperor. Um, and he was condemned to death eventually. Um, but the the problem is, so the, there are sort of two levels of the problem here. Um, the first is that Messalina was the one who was pushing this, was pushing um, Claudius in this direction. But the other is that the first part of the trial was held in... Um, Claudius's bedroom rather than in the Senate because Messalina wanted a sort of closed doors environment in order to get the first part of this trial over and done with. So that was a real, uh, a, a really good example, I think, of how uh, women uh, are accused <laughs> um, of having uh, more power than they should by um, Roman historians, who of course are thinking about this from um, a very uh, Roman perspective of the evils and the mistrust of women as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. If you were to take all of the rumours and insinuations about when about the Roman emperors who were assassinated, you would come to the conclusion that virtually all of them were assassinated. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And then we had this question that came in from um, Herditus, the historian on Twitter, and they wrote in to say, can you tell us about the Black Roman Emperor? He was fascinating. Ah, yeah, okay. So um, this, I think, is um, the, uh, someone who's known as the first African emperor. This is Septimius Severus. Um, so we're in the late second century, early third century now. He um, His uh, reign was from 193 to, um, I think, 211 AD. Um, and this is a period of history, again, where we get a little bit of um, a disruption in terms of the system of, of government, in terms of the emperors. So, um, as I mentioned briefly before, after Nero's death, there was a period of civil war for a year between AD 68 to 69 until Vespasian eventually set up the uh, dynasty of the Flavians. Um, we get that again with the death of Commodus. So um, Commodus dies in December in 192. Um, and after that, we get what's known as, what colloquially known as the year of the five emperors. Um, and the person who wins out from that is Septimius um, Severus, who then goes on to found his own dynasty, um, which includes some of those emperors um, that were mentioned in an earlier question. So Caracalla is his son, and then Elagabalus and um, Severus Alexander as well. Um, so Septimius Severus is yeah, absolutely right. He's a really interesting emperor. Um, he was born in Leptis Magna, which is modern day Libya. Um, and like I said, he won out um, out of this period of civil war. So that generally means he was uh, quite ruthless, <laughs> usually in a military context. Um, but he had a good uh, sort of family, his, um, well, a very good family. His um, father was an equestrian, so part of the um, uh, non-political elite, I guess is the way to describe that. Um, but he had senatorial cousins and he had a very um, prominent wife as well. His wife was Julia Domna, uh, who was from a religious priestly family in Syria. So quite, you know, we've got... Um, uh, emperor from Leptis Magna and uh, his wife is is from Syria. Um, and Septimius um, Severus had had a senatorial career himself since uh, about AD 160. Um, and he was uh, governor of, of provinces, so one in Gaul and then in Sicily and then in Upper Pannonia, which is where he was when he um, sort of, you know, starts the campaign to be emperor, as it were, when Commodus dies. Um, and he had a quite... Uh, Long reign himself, as I said, for till about uh, till two one one when his um, when he dies and his his two sons take over. Um, but during that reign, um, he's on campaign quite a lot, and he is the 
last emperor really to try and expand the Roman Empire. So he um, established the province of Mesopotamia um, during his uh, time as emperor um, as well. And that was um, sort of the last attempt to do that sort of expansion really um, uh, before things started to to, uh, erode um, a little bit in terms of the maintenance of the empire as we go into the later third century. Um, So when he died, his two sons took over, who were um, Caracalla and Geta, Um, although Geta didn't last very long because Caracalla killed him, so that's maybe a story for another time. Um, But his wife, as I said, is really fascinating as well, Julia Domna, Um, and it's in fact her side of the family that then, um, after the death of Caracalla, that's where the next emperors come from. So it's it's her relatives that are Elagabalus in Syria and Alexander Severus. Um, So So um, Elagabalus is colloquially known as the Syrian emperor, for example. Um, But not only that, um, she was also a very um, educated woman, it seems, a a literary patron. Um, She had many philosophers uh, under her patronage. And the literature from this period of time as well is so rich, partly owing to the patronage of um, Julia Domna. And of course, as I mentioned before, she was uh, mother of the camp as well. So had that string to her bow. (laughs) Um, and then we coming on to what the actual role of an emperor, um, we had a question from Altu Onlen on Facebook, and their question was, how much power did a Roman emperor have? How much practical control would they have had? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. So um, emperors were powerful. I don't think we can necessarily... Um, well, different emperors had different amounts of interest, I guess, in, in holding power. Um, one of the criticisms of Nero was that he just lost interest, right? So later on in his reign, he decided, you know, I am I want to go and, and perform in Greece. I'm going to go and leave Rome for, you know, a year, a year and a bit and go and perform and do various things in Greece. Um, and he is, of course, criticised for that because that's not what an emperor should be doing. An emperor should be at Rome. They should be um, in this Judeo-Claudian period anyway, um, unless they're off on military campaign. Um, they should be in Rome and they should be in charge of, of things. That's sort of, uh, you know, a big part of their portfolio, as it were. Um, but historians as well tend to talk about their power in relation to their success. So um, too much... Um, too much being too dictatorial as it were I think that's probably the way to put it in more modern terms being too taking too much power and taking too many decisions simply on your own or with bad advice so Claudius for example was well known for taking bad advice the the uh, he took in far too much um, account of the opinions of women and freedmen according to our sources and not nearly enough of of um you know actual established politicians in in Rome. Um, So there's that sort of side of the dictatorial nature, I guess. And then, um, but but against that, there's also the idea that you will just lose interest completely. So, um, you know, Nero is criticised for that because actually previously in his um, principate, he had, you know, been quite involved in in the Senate, in passing legislation, um, in those sorts of activities, which is what an emperor um, should be doing. Um, so generally speaking, um, I think they it, it was sort of recognised that the emperor 
should be involved, should be very involved in the in politics, of course, in, in the running of Rome. The Senate was um, very uh, involved in the administration of empire. The, the um, emperor's administrators were as well, but the, the Senate too had quite a big role in that. Um, but in terms of being in Rome in the centre, in terms of attending the Senate, um, someone like Marcus Aurelius, for example, is... is um, praised in our sources because when he is in Rome, and of course he's out on campaign a lot, but when he is in Rome, he makes sure he attends the Senate and he's very careful to be involved in those sorts of things. But as with all things in life in Roman history, um, it's a balance. So you want to be taking counsel, you want to be taking advice from Good, good, wise people, um, such as um, you know, established politicians, established senators. Um, but uh, you, so be involved, but make sure that you have the right counsel around you. I think is probably the the the, the answer um, to to how an emperor should um, have you know wield their power practically. And then on the same point, really, um, Richard Goldstein on Twitter wrote in with this question: Did Roman emperors have staffs? What was the bureaucratic mechanism for instituting their policy decisions across the empire? Yeah, so this question is is related in a way, and and so the answer is yes, they did have have staff. So things like financial secretaries, um, correspondence secretaries, often one for Greek and one for Latin, and um, private secretaries, and um, they also had you know less administrative focused. Um, um, uh, people around them as well. So in their in their court, they would have had writers, poets. You know, some more than others, perhaps. But Augustus is famous for having, um, as as one of his uh, close friends and advisors, Mycenas, who uh, was the patron of people like Virgil and and, and Horace. So there was sort of two sides of this: the very um, uh, administrative side in in terms of the secretaries, but also a literary side often as well. Nero, too, of course, had people like Petronius and Lucan um, in his court. These things changed. These, the, who, who actually, these, what sorts of people held these positions um, changed a little bit during uh, time as well. So financial secretaries and correspondence secretaries and, and so forth um, in the early Julio-Claudian period um, uh, would have been probably freedmen. So these weren't necessarily at this point particularly prestigious jobs to have. They became so as because of the proximity that they had to the emperor. But in the early period, they were normally occupied by freedmen. Um, but later on, um, equestrians, so those um, much more uh, elite members of society um, were also holding these roles. So, for example, uh, Suetonius probably held one of these roles for Hadrian, the emperor. I hear Hadrian. So Suetonius, the biographer, he was an equestrian, uh, probably also held one of these roles. Um, in terms of the administration of empire and, and um, that side of the question, as I uh, said before, the senators play quite a big role in this as well um, as governors, um, not of all provinces, but of, of quite a number of provinces. Uh, Egypt, for example, had an equestrian governor um, usually, but um, a lot of provinces had senators as, as their governors um, and praetors uh, in particular, which is uh, the magistrate in the Senate, the one below consul, they had quite a big role um, in empire as well. And we get a, a great um, sense of how this worked on a, a practical level um, through 
um, letters that are sent backwards and forwards between governors and, and emperors. Um, so the Roman postal system, in other words, and how that facilitated those uh, bureaucratic um, uh, engagements between the centre and the, the, the provinces. Um, so the most famous example of this, of course, is Pliny the Younger, who wrote a series of letters when he was governor of a province called Bithynia um, in uh, Asia Minor. Um, he wrote backwards and forwards to the um, to the Emperor Trajan, asking for advice on certain things. So, you know, this situation has arisen. What should I do? What do you think? Um, those kinds of questions. Uh, we have really good evidence, a brilliant set, set of letters for. Um, and provincials could also um, contact the emperor directly as well, petition the emperor. Uh, we do have uh, small bits of evidence um, for that as well. Um, provincials could send embassies to the emperor if that was something that, that if the, the issue was big enough. But for smaller things, uh, petitions could come directly to the emperor who would have time in his day to answer these letters and uh, or, or have his secretaries do it sometimes as well. Okay, and then we've got a um, question about the succession of Roman emperors and a simple one really from Dom Ray on Instagram. And they asked, how did Roman emperors choose their successors? Yeah, so this is um, a great question and, and one that, again, different ways. <laughs> Depends on what time period you're thinking of, um, as you know, what you might be expecting uh, to be the answer. So actually, having said that, usually it was dynastic. Usually it was someone either, ideally, your son, right, um, ideally, but Roman fertility uh, didn't always allow that to happen um there were lots of um you know we have a lot of evidence of rome of uh, from from ancient rome from a social perspective social history um of of the problems that that were evident there um augustus and livia for example did not have any children um so there are they had children with other people but together they didn't have any children so often it was difficult for emperors to um have uh, their own child as their successor simply because they didn't have any male children um augustus of course is an example of that um so in those cases, you would adopt someone who was a, a relative in your family, a male relative. Um, so Augustus adopted his stepson, Tiberius, Livia's son from a, a previous marriage. Um, and then uh, Tiberius adopted um, Caligula, who was, uh, again, another, another relation, Caligula. Um, died without adopting anyone. He was uh, killed in a conspiracy by the Praetorian guards. Uh, but they then the Praetorian guards cho found um, in the palace his uncle, actually Caligula's uncle, Claudius. And Claudius is our next emperor. And then um, Claudius adopts his uh, stepson, Nero, the, uh, the son of Agrippina, who has become his wife. Um, so we get, um, even though these emperors would perhaps want their own children, their own sons to become emperor after them, um, often they didn't have their own sons or it didn't quite work out like that. For Claudius, his, his natural son, Britannicus, um, wasn't old enough yet, for example, when he died. Um, then with the Flavians, so that's sort of the Julio-Claudian madness, um, with the Flavians, it's much more straightforward. Um, Vespasian had two sons and they both became emperor. Um, so uh, Vespasian's eldest son, Titus, became emperor when Vespasian died. He was emperor for two years. And then after Titus died, his younger brother, 
um, Vespasian's younger son, Domitian, became emperor. And, you know, he might not have been successful, but at least the, 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 the dynastic element was more straightforward. Um, then after that, we get a period known as the adoptive emperors. So from Nerva um, in uh, 96 AD through to the death of Commodus um, in December 192, um, most of the emperors there are adopted, with the exception of Commodus. So um, Commodus is the natural son of Marcus Aurelius, but um, the emperors before him, from Nerva through to Marcus Aurelius, were all adopted. Um, and that's not because of some significant realisation necessarily that that uh, what happened with the Julio-Claudians and the Flavians wasn't the best way to pick a successor, um, but rather that these emperors didn't have sons that they, or members of their family necessarily, that they were able to choose as successors. So they had to look further afield. Um, so Nerva adopted Trajan, who was a very um, uh, well-established, I guess, military uh, general at that point. Uh, Trajan adopted um, Hadrian, um, although there's perhaps a little bit of machinations going on there. When Cassius Dio tells us that story, we're not sure whether the letter of Hadrian's adoption was actually forged by Trajan's wife, Plotina. Um, you know, all sorts of implications. Um, and then we get uh, the adoption of Antoninus Pius by Hadrian. Um, and then Antoninus Pius adopts Marcus Aurelius. But Marcus Aurelius is actually also his son-in-law. So um, Marcus Aurelius is married to Antoninus Pius's daughter. Um, so most of the time, it's dynastic most of the time. <laughs> and there's something you actually alluded to in the last answer when you were talking about Caligula. Is a question we had in from Neil or, or Niall Smiley Oman on Facebook. And uh, he wanted to know how many Roman emperors were assassinated? Ah, yes. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the answer to this question. So the reason why I say I don't know is because... Um, if you were to take all of the rumours and insinuations about when about the Roman emperors who were assassinated, you would come to the conclusion that virtually all of them were assassinated. Um, there are accusations that Livia might have poisoned Augustus. You know, this is, comes through I. Claudius, of course, but, um, you know, there's sort of uh, insinuations you can find in the ancient sources as well. The instance I just talked about with Plotina is another one. So was there something going on? You know, it's insinuated. We don't, it, it, there's nothing, you know, this isn't historical consensus. One source suggests that perhaps there was something slightly um, untoward in that succession of power. Um so if if we take all of those as true, then it's I can't I'm trying to think of an example of an emperor who isn't implicated in some sort of, of, of um, assassination attempt. Nerva, perhaps he was very he was in his sixties when he became emperor already, so wasn't necessarily expected to last very long. Um, although there were two assassination attempts or conspiracies during his very short two years. Um, there's even occasionally insinuations that Titus may have been involved in the death of his father, Vespasian, although the, our main sources don't, don't necessarily um, see that as credible. So it, it's, um, 
I, I would say probably in reality, not as many as uh, is insinuated. But if you sort of look down down history, it's um, often um, almost every other emperor, if not every emperor, has some sort of um, accusation of uh, foul play going on involved in their death. So uh, quite a few. Um, there was uh, quite a lot of, of, of violent death, I think, in, in those transitions of power often. So it was quite a dangerous job then to be Roman emperor. Yeah, I think I think that's fairly safe to say. <laughs> on on uh, not only in terms of the dynastic succession, but also in terms of of um, in later emperors as well. In particular, in terms of going on campaign, um, you know the the problems that you have with that. Trajan, for example, probably died of a, a disease that when he was on campaign. So. You know, Roman life full stop was perilous. The mortality rate is high in terms of, uh, of course, in terms of the ancient Roman world. Um, being an emperor, of course, there was those dynastic machinations, although you probably maybe had some of that in the Republic with <laughs> in the later periods as well. Um, but certainly, I think just being a Roman was um, your life expectancy was shortened by the period in which you lived. And then another popular internet search query was, what did the Roman emperors wear? Ah, yes. Okay. So um, clothing. Again, this is a great question because um, there are different sort of accounts from different emperors as to what they would have worn. The the quick answer, if you like, is is tunics and togas, that, that kind of thing. So um, uh, casual wear would normally be a sort of a tunic. So sort of two pieces of, of cloth that would be sewn together at the shoulders and then down the sides, that's sort of fairly straightforward. Um, your toga, of course, if you were um, doing something more formal. Um, but dress is also a way of, of showing how an emperor conducts themselves, how ready they are to be, um, you know, to exercise that power we were talking about earlier. How ready are they to jump into an emergency session of the Senate? Um, or are they always sort of in their dressing gowns, sort of not quite um, not quite uh, ready for the day? Um, and the, there are some really nice examples. Suetonius um, talks about dress um, in his biographies of the emperors. Um, there's normally a section at the end of his biographies that talk about these, these sorts of things. And, and um, Suetonius, for example, he describes Augustus, um, so this is a quotation from Suetonius, um, he says it, uh, for, about Augustus, except on special occasions he wore common clothes for the house, made by his sister, his wife, daughter or granddaughters. His toga were neither close nor full, um, his purple um, stripe neither narrow nor broad. So um, just to put that in context, it would be narrow for an equestrian, it would be broad for a senator. He's sort of positioning himself as somewhere in between. Um, and his shoes somewhat high-soled to make him look taller than he really was. Um, but he always kept shoes and clothing to wear in public ready um, in his room for sudden and unexpected occasions. So normal sort of, you know, daily clothes, your tunic, that sort of thing, but those spun by his female relatives um, for for uh, around the house, but then, you know, the formal togas as, as well, which pitched the right sort of um, compromise between uh, between being neither too full nor too, too close. So um, a well-fitting toga for 
Augustus. And we can compare that to Suetonius's account of how Nero dressed. Um, he says, um, Nero was utterly shameless in the care of his person and in his dress, always having his hair arranged in tiers of curls, and during his trip to Greece, also letting it grow long and hanging down behind. He often appeared in public in a dining robe with a handkerchief bound about his um, neck, ungirt and unshod. So uh, there's a politics to dress, as you will be, I'm sure, unsurprised to hear when we get accounts of these sorts of things from our sources. So there's a politics of everything, including a politics of dress. Um, Augustus had, you know, clothes homespun and a toga always ready to go um, at uh, the drop of a hat, whereas Nero was very happy to go around in his dining robe um, in public. Great. And uh, a question that I think will appeal to people who've seen the film Gladiator. And uh, that is from uh, John Cartwright on Twitter, who asked, which Roman emperor organised the greatest games in the Colosseum? Ah, OK. So um, the great, the person that I always think of when I think of games in the Colosseum and, and you know, what must have been an absolutely uh, massive spectacle um, is the Emperor Trajan. And Trajan was uh, a military emperor. He went on campaign quite a lot and he, um, including uh, conquering the province of Dacia, what became the Roman province of, of Dacia. Um, this happened in around 106 AD. And Following his conquest of Dacia, um, once you go on conquest, you are able to gain a lot of money, both through um, spoils of war in terms of material objects, but also in terms of selling um, people into slavery. So there was a lot of, of money that could be made following a conquest. And when emperors got back to Rome, one of the things, of course, that you would want to do is throw spectacular games. And Trajan, um, through Cassius Dyer tells us, through 123 days of games in the Colosseum um, in around 106-107, um, that uh, included 11,000 animals and 10,000 gladiators um, during that time period. So um, th uh, that, to me, always seems like a ex good example of, of uh, probably the most spectacular and and long long games as well. And then we've just got a couple more questions. So moving on to the end of the Roman Empire, be interested. I, I guess um, we could do a, a separate answer for the Eastern Roman Empire. But who was the last Western Roman emperor, and were they in any way responsible for the downfall of that part of the empire? Okay, so the last Western Roman emperor was um, is is generally said to be a um, man uh, named Romulus Augustulus. So he had um, in as part of his name, the uh, first king of Rome and the first emperor of Rome. Augustulus means the little Augustus. So Romulus Augustulus. Um, and this was the time period we're in now is the fifth century AD. And the date for the fall of the Western Roman Empire is usually thought to be 476. 476 AD is the, the date given to it. Um, however, I should say that that date is arbitrary. It is, it was put back on that time period later. So by a um Byzantine historian, in fact, called Marcellinus Comes. Um, there's a great programme on this um, on uh, the BBC World Services um, programme, The Forum, on the fall of the Western Roman Empire, where some brilliant academics talk about things like Marcellinus Comes um, and others. So 
um, there is uh, that, and that was very recently recorded. But um, that date, so that date is slightly arbitrary. Um, and generally, when we think about the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, um, it's not because of a single emperor or because of um, you know, anything Romulus Augustulus necessarily did or didn't do. Um, generally, it's thought of, um, and this is true historically as well as now, um, um, thought of in much broader um, sort of historical trends, I guess, the ideas of causes and consequences. Um, Edward Gibbon, of course, very famously in the 18th century, wrote um, multiple volumes on the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Um, and then uh, we also get other philosophers and thinkers. So uh, Montesquieu, for example, in uh, the 18th century as well, uh, writes a um, uh, 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 a shorter piece of work called uh, a study basically on the causes and uh, consequences of the the decline um, uh, of the Roman Empire. And generally speaking, this is thought of more in terms of uh, the military strategy of the Romans, the expansion of empire, how big it had had gotten, as it were, that that actually the Roman success in their their military prowess caused their decline because um, because it was very difficult to keep control of that that much land, that much territory, especially when you've got um, invaders coming in from different different areas. Um, so historically, that's how it's sort of sort of thought about. Also, um, of course, Gibbon and Montesquieu made arguments about luxury and decadence, and and uh, Gibbon also makes an argument about Christianity as well, the role that Christianity might may have played um, in the uh, fall of the Roman Empire in the West. Um, however, I think more modern scholarship is starting to nuance that a little bit, um, rightly so, to think about the um, events of the 5th century, not so much in terms of a straightforward sort of barbarian invasion and fall, but actually look far more at the relationships between the Romans and those people they called and we still call barbarians, um, those tribes from the north and and and, and so forth, um, who actually had very strong relationships with Romans, you know, served um, sometimes as auxiliary soldiers in the army, those kinds of things. Um, and actually, it's also possible to see this more in terms of a migratory movement as much as it is anything to do with the decisive fall. Um, so I think that's something to, to take into account as well. Great. And just one last question um, for me, which is, came in from Reek Rark on Instagram, and they asked, who is considered to be the best Roman emperor? And I'd also be interested whether you share that view of them. <laughs> um, so the best Roman emperor um, was, his, I think, still probably um, considered to be, uh, certainly in antiquity, he was given the name, the Optimus Princeps, the best of emperors. Um, and that was Trajan. Um, so 98 to 117 um, AD. Um, and he was thought of as the best of emperors because he was fair and just and he had, you know, the military side of him, but he was also a very good administrator. He struck that right balance of, of um, you know, respect for the Senate, but also um, taking an interest in things in Rome. He clearly through these spectacular games, 123 days, what's not to love? Um, unless, of course, you're an animal or a gladiator. Um, what's, you know, in, in that circumstance? Um, but 
But he also um, has a really interesting legacy in terms of this um, title of Optimus Princeps of being the best emperor and also being a just emperor. Um, so an emperor who admit, who was really fair and um, administered justice very well. Um, and there's a really nice story um, that comes through uh, the Christian tradition, which is um, that it, Pope Gregory in the late 6th century um, apparently prayed that Trajan should be taken out of limbo. So because he is pagan when he died, he is in limbo, he's stuck in limbo, um, and be allowed to die again, this time as a Christian. So the prayers of Pope Gregory allow for a sort of, um, you know, uh, resurrection, if you like, of Trajan, um, who is then able to die again, um, having recognized and converted to Christianity in this um, in this sixth century context. And that then allows Dante, when he writes um, the Divine Comedy, to allow Trajan into paradise. So he is he's the best of emperors in antiquity, but he is also, um, you know, there's a very interesting legacy to that as well. He is is thought of um, also in the Christian tradition in that way, which um which is really interesting as a part of his reception history. Um, whether I think he's the best emperor, or, um, um, he's he's. I'm really interested. Well, as uh, uh, probably uh, my interest in Nero uh, <laughs> sort of reveals, I'm really interested in some of those emperors who were criticised rather than the ones who were praised. I quite like the Elagabaluses and the Neros who um, are. Uh, uh, described as doing weird and wonderful things and and looking at how those those uh, acts are you know ex expanded exploited um manipulated in later periods when we talk and think about those emperors so i'm not sure i would necessarily say that nero or elagabalus is the best of roman emperors but i find them fascinating so for me they're they're good <laughs> that was shushma malik her latest book the nero antichrist Founding and Fashioning a Paradigm, was published last year by Cambridge University Press. And Shushma will be returning to this podcast in the next few weeks for a more in-depth appraisal of Marcus Aurelius as he reaches his 1,900th birthday. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Andrea Pitzer will be sharing a harrowing tale of Arctic survival. <laughs> <laughs>